Well, we always like to get updates from Sue Dove at the Uncas Health Center. Welcome, Sue. Hi, Stu. Good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, well, let's see. Uh, just a few questions I wanted to ask you today. Like sure. 6,000 or so. But I'll, uh, I'll get right to the point on some things. You know, some of the doctors now, when I have an appointment, they'll say uh, optional masks. Does that mean we should feel comfortable that COVID is just about gone? Or what do you think? So if you think about it like the flu... Um, it's looking like there's more of a seasonality to it. So mm-hmm. looks like we're kind of settling into, to, you know, similar to the fall or to the flu, rather, um, a flu kind of cadence to it where we start seeing it in the fall. That's not to say that there aren't some cases out there right now. I just recently talked to some folks that uh, were traveling and um, unfortunately got COVID. So it's still out there, but we also get flu reports randomly in June and July. Um, but I think the bulk of it is under control. I think the vaccines um, helped to kind of uh, calm it down a little bit. And it's, as a lot of viruses do, it is sort of running its course, even though it has evolved several times. Um that's kind of the nature of viruses. That's how they survive. They, they keep changing on us, but I think they've realized that uh, we may be a few steps ahead of them at this point. So, I can see all those little viruses in a, in a convention trying to figure it out. Exactly, exactly. Mm. That would make a great cartoon. <laughs> okay, um, I'll work on that but one. As far as, you know, as, there, as far as feeling safe about not wearing a mask, I mean, Keep in mind, we don't want to let our guard completely down. We're just around the corner from flu season, I hate to say it, but anyone that, you know, is not feeling well, if they have a fever, if they have respiratory symptoms, should consider wearing a mask to protect others from getting sick because, as you know, we have people in our community that are immunosuppressed and can't fight off those kinds of illnesses. And whether it's a cold or the flu or COVID, um, the mask, uh, the person who's sick wearing a mask helps to reduce the likelihood that they're going to pass it on to others. My wife's doctor said uh, that probably around the, the fall that they have coming up with a vaccine that covers a lot of variations of COVID and that that'll probably be recommended. Uh, are you hearing anything like that? Yes. So as a matter of fact, fresh off the FDA uh, website, there has been a recommendation made. There, there was a meeting in uh, last month and it was the group that typically meets. It's called the Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee. Um, and they meet to discuss what is going to happen around vaccines. And so this group studied a lot of information about what's currently circulating for viruses, what's been happening to the viruses that had been circulating previously. And what they came up with is basically the formulation for the fall is going to contain one variant and it's one of the Omicron variants. And in looking at it, while there are a couple of different Omicron variants out there, they feel that the one that they've selected has enough 
um, similarities um, that this should be effective against the three predominant um, Omicron strains that are out there right now. So um, they're probably going to be coming out with that, I would say, towards the end of September, maybe sometime into October. So I think what we're going to end up seeing is every fall, you know, we're going to be kind of looking for people to get their flu shot and their COVID uh, boosters. Mm -hmm. When you think about it, flu shot is kind of a booster because you get it every year because the strains change. Um, I think the COVID vaccine is going to kind of fall into that same category. So we hear some negativity with the the COVID shots and the vaccines as far as uh, reaction. Not hardly anything with the flu shots. We're just going, we don't even think about it. But now with the certain things that you hear in the media, good, bad, and ugly, yeah, people now have become a little reluctant with that vaccine. Uh, how do you feel about that? Well, um, I mean, we've always had issues with vaccine hesitancy, but I do agree that with COVID, there was certainly an increase in that um, anti-vaccine sentiment the you know unfortunately politics got in the way Mm -hmm. of the science with this and um, I think that those of us in public health that are truly you know wanting to keep our community safe and healthy were disappointed that the politics kind of took over that um, campaign but you know, I personally took all of the vaccines and the boosters that were recommended for me. Um, mm-hmm. I have done fine. My family has taken it and not had any issues. Um, I would not give anything to anyone if I thought it was going to cause them harm. Of course um, not. Mm-hmm. I, you know, our jobs as uh, public health nurses are to educate so that people can make an informed decision about their healthcare choices. And that includes which vaccines they want or need. And so we do our best to provide the education that is available to us. And we never push someone into making a decision. You have to be comfortable as the patient receiving sure. that vaccine. Have a listener, I believe I was a question for you. Hi, WICH. I guess they didn't want to hang on too long, but they can call back at 889-5252. So, was the flu season very uh, lighter than people thought of last season? Actually, flu season was very busy last year. It was, okay. Um, And I think part of it was the fact that um, people were so tired of wearing masks Mm -hmm, that um, people who may have in a normal flu season thought about staying home or thought about wearing a mask if they weren't feeling well just kind of threw caution to the wind and unfortunately that um, led to more cases of flu. We had the busiest flu season that we've had in a long time at Uncas Health District. The only reason I mention that, I guess in my circle of friends, uh, there was no flu situation, so you would know better than anyone because you dealt with it. Uh, Let me see if I can get this caller in. Hi, WICH. Hi, question for the show? Sure. 
so uh, in another part of the world where it's winter, uh, obviously it's uh, flu season there. I just wonder, do you have the uh, statistic yet on uh, what that's going to look like for us for this upcoming uh, uh, flu season? Thank you. Yeah, that's do you... a great question. Mm. Um, we always look to the southern hemisphere for our predictions for the fall. Um, I haven't looked recently. Um, it did, uh, I believe, about a month and a half ago, um, I had seen some information about some, <clears throat> excuse me, uptick in cases in Australia um, and that it was affecting children uh, more so than adults, but I haven't seen any recent updates on that. But uh, usually about this time of year, I start kind of checking in to see what I'm in for. Um, it's, it's, you know, not... 100% accurate, but it gives you a general idea of what you might be in for for the upcoming Pretty good indications. Here. Yeah, that was a good question. So, um, yeah. I, I mentioned it when we were setting up that we were going to chat today about uh, hearing in the news that uh, there seems to be more frequency. It's not certainly to the extent of a pandemic of tuberculosis. Some people feel that so many people coming over the border, they could be bringing it in are you getting anything, uh, information on that? So we certainly know that we have people coming in from other countries where TB is what we would consider endemic. And that just means that it's well established in these countries. We know that it's there. And um, there are very few countries in the U.S., or I'm sorry, in the world where um, TB is not endemic. And the United States, and um, Canada are among two of them. Uh, but we do have um, an influx of people coming in from the Ukraine uh, where we know it's endemic. But we have also put safeguards in place to ensure that uh, the individuals that are coming in through the Ukraine actually have a special screening program that they go through. Um, we test them for uh, for TB, we do a blood test, and if their blood test is positive, we do a chest X-ray, and if their chest X-ray is positive, then they're evaluated by a infectious disease physician to determine if they need treatment. So there there is a system in place to manage that. I think what we may run into is um, individuals that enter the country that are undocumented. Um, many of them are coming from countries where we also know it's endemic and there is no process for these individuals. So we may find out by accident that, um, you know, because somebody ends up in an emergency room and they're sick, and then we find out that they have active TB. Mm -hmm. But I will say that I've been at the Uncas Health District. Um, it'll be nine years in August, and on average... I see about one to two active TB cases a year. Keep in mind that we have a pretty diverse population here, um, and we see a lot of folks coming um, that seek employment at the casinos, and um, they, you know, obviously diversity is a great thing because you can offer services in so many different languages, um, and you're familiar with the customs of other countries. So. <coughs> But that comes with, um, you know, some concerns about coming in from other countries where TB is endemic. But we have 
um, again, great systems in place for people that are immigrating from other countries. And um, they're called B1, B2 visas, and they're coming into the United States. Um, and they are evaluated before they leave their country of origin, but then they're reevaluated when they get stateside. So uh, we get what we call TB immigrant packets. So I probably get about probably 25 to 30 of those a year not including the people that are coming in for the Ukraine. So um, again, processes in place to catch um, anyone that might have what we would call latent TB infection where they're not contagious, um, but they have the same germ in them that could become activated. So we try to get those folks in and get their latent infection treated so it doesn't become an active Infection so what you're saying is that you must have they must have very good treatments for it to before it gets full blown and um, that's very treatable, very treatable. Yeah. Yep, anywhere from four to six months of treatment. Sometimes nine. It de- it kind of depends on the country they came from, what their tests show. But um, most LTBI or latent TB infections are treated within about six to nine months. Now, I don't want to panic anybody, but if you have a full-blown case of TB, uh, are you able to more... Of course, we grew up, and that was a terrible word, tuberculosis, but mm-hmm. are they able to treat that much better now? Yes. Um, usually now, um, TB treatment, believe it or not, is on average six months. Uh, they take medications daily for two months, and then at that point, uh, we switch them over to three times a week. And um, the treatment for tuberculosis is so important that the patients are given their medication through a system called direct observed therapy. And that means that somebody physically watches them take their medicine mm-hmm. for every single dose of their treatment. And I have had, with all of my clients, I have had 100% compliance with all of that. And, you know, we have technology now that allows us to do it with things like FaceTime or WhatsApp, which are secure video links with the patient that we can connect directly so that it's um, less intrusive for the patient if they want to go to work but they need to take their medication. Then they can call me before they go to work take their medicine, and then we're done until the next day. That's very, well, this is very interesting because I don't think we've ever discussed this. Um, we used to live right next to a TB hospital when I was growing up, so I learned a, a little bit about it. Now, when you're getting treatment, are you still are you contagious while you're getting treatment? So typically what happens, um, there's a kind of a way that we figure out that you're no longer contagious, and it involves the patient producing sputum samples and they're tested. So the criteria is if they have provided us with three consecutive negative sputums that are 24 hours apart, then um, they're considered no longer contagious and they can go about their day, do whatever they need to do. They don't need to wear a mask. Um, But until we get that clearance, then they need to remain isolated, they need to wear a mask, and um, 
when I say isolated, I mean if they have a place where they can safely isolate at home. Some patients have to stay in the hospital until they get to that point, but that's not um, very often that they have to stay in the hospital for that whole time. Usually about two to three weeks in the hospital and they have been on the medication long enough and the sputums have cleared so they can then be discharged and um, you know go about their usual business. Okay, um, let me just throw a few things at you. I know you've been very, very busy, but you're always busy, Sue, right? That's public health. Public health, yeah. Day to day, we never know. So, um, shingle shots, there are two of them. Yes. A a doctor once told me, and I don't think it's true, this was years ago, that if you get it once, you won't get it again. Was he right? I don't think so. Was he? Um, That may depend on a couple of things. So, if you've never been vaccinated for it, um, and you do have it, um, which typically happens because you had chickenpox as a child. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you have not been vaccinated, there is a chance that you could get a second um, infection, which is why the vaccine is so highly recommended, the, the Shingrix vaccine in particular. It's not very often that the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices gives a preferential recommendation but in this particular case, they did because the data was just so compelling um, that they had to, um, they, they just made that recommendation. I've had the shingles vaccine myself, and I will say that um, my arm was sore for a few days and kind of itchy. But other than that, I really didn't have any side effects or anything, I highly recommend it because I've seen some pretty bad cases of shingles, and if I can prevent that from happening, I'm going to be the first in line to sign up for that. Oh, yeah, I've heard some terrible cases. I had a a bad one years ago, years and years ago, got around my eye, and oh, my God, but... The doctor yeah, the said, eye one is very hmm. serious. You can lose your vision. Yeah. It's actually considered a medical emergency if you get shingles around your eye. You need to be seen by an ophthalmologist right away. Yeah, yeah. There are two so, shots, though. It's not just one. You've got to take two of them? Yes, it's um, two shots, and if I remember correctly, the first shot is given, and then the second one can be given two to six months after the first one. And then you can feel real secure, but after the first one, just a little secure. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, with any va- when when a vaccine is in a series, you're not fully protected until you've completed mm-hmm. the series. So, so give me uh, some good health that's going. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I did want to actually talk to you about something sort of local. Sure. I think I mentioned to you that, you know, I've had a particularly busy season with ticks this year, and we partner with the Connecticut Agricultural Experimental Station to get um, ticks tested that people bring to us um, because it's been embedded on them or they found it crawling on them. And I was pleasantly surprised as I was going over our statistics that despite the fact that we've had 71 ticks submitted this year, 
Um, and nine of those were dog ticks that don't get tested. Mm -hmm. We have two results pending, but the number of tests, uh, ticks testing negative actually is more than double um, the number of tests that actually, or the ticks that test positive. So just to give you the numbers, for the ticks that tested positive for Lyme, there were six. For positive for babesiosis, it was two. Anaplasmosis, positive were two. And now we get to the good news. The Lyme negative were 14. The Babesia negative were 18. And the Anaplasmosis negative were 18. So I get it that it's just a small sampling of probably what's going on in the entire state and we do know that Lyme disease and babesiosis and anaplasmosis are endemic here in Connecticut, but I was pleasantly surprised to see that we're seeing more negative results than positive. Well, that's always and, good to hear. Yes, so, um, but I also want to temper that with the fact that just because the tick is positive doesn't necessarily mean that it has transmitted whatever it's positive for to the human that it um, attached to. So most cases, um, if the tick has been embedded for less than 24 hours, um, it likely has not transmitted anything to the human that it attached to. However, um, having said that, we don't like to guess about these things. Of course. So we always recommend that when you find a tick, that you remove it carefully, and that can be with a pair of tweezers, just flat against your skin, sort of grab the tick on either side and pull straight up so that the head comes out as well. And then you can bring it to the health department, and we put it in a little tiny Ziploc baggie, and we send them on a little flight with our friends at the United States Postal Service. My goodness. And then he gets, he or she gets tested. And um, if you put your email on the form, the copy of that same report goes directly to the person who submitted the tick. And like I said, it's not necessarily diagnostic for the person, but sometimes it's just a little bit of extra information for the patient and the doctor to have in their, uh, the back of their mind. And I will tell you that every person who submits a tick here, I always remind them that they shouldn't wait for the results of the tick test, that if they develop fevers or chills, aches or pains, or any kind of rash, they should go see their healthcare provider immediately and let them know that they did have a tick embedded on them and because you don't want to wait to treat it. The quicker them. we treat it, the quicker we kind of knock mm -hmm. it out of your system. So they'll start you immediately on antibiotics. If there's any suspicion? Yes. That's, yes. These are good. This is good advice, Sue. Let me just get another question. Hi, WICH. Hi, Sue. I got a question for Sue. Go ahead. What is it? Yeah, I had Sue. I had uh, Lyme disease twice. And I live right down the street from Bacchus. I had to go to the hospital. I thought I had uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the pandemic was going on. And I tested negative. But I went in there and they said, no, Joe, you got uh, uh, Lyme disease. And I was in the ICU for five days. And I was weak. My heart rate went down. Mm -hmm. is, it, is it true once you get Lyme? 
is it going to, they say it stays dormant in your body, and it, can it come back and get a relapse on it? That's well, my question. Thank, thank thanks, you. Joe. And thank you for all your work, Sue. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you, Joe. That's a great question. Um, there are schools of thought out there that say that um, Lyme in particular um, can sort of be playing a little bit of hide-and-seek. So even though we treat it um, with a typical course of antibiotics, um, depending on how long you've had Lyme, it could be kind of hiding in places where the antibiotic may not be able to reach it or um, maybe there hasn't been quite enough antibiotic to really seek it out and destroy it. Um, But for the most part, you know, the, the key always in anything public health is prevention. So if you can get out there and if you're outside, um, you know, working in your yard or you're walking through a park or you're taking a hike, be tick ready. And by that I mean wear light colored clothes, make sure your pant legs are tucked into your socks, um, keep long sleeves uh, so that they're more easily spotted. And then when you get home, do a really thorough tick check. Um, And if you see one, remove it. And, um, you know, those are the prevention things you could do. You can also use uh, repellent, tick repellent. um, And there's treatments you can do to your clothes. It's called permethrin, but you need to do that outside. And it will stay on your clothing, even though you launder it, for a period of time to help prevent mm-hmm. um, the uh, the ticks from attacking. So, um, especially if you're a camper, a lot of folks that camp will treat their gear and their um, camping equipment, um, and it will, like I said, last through about several washings. So, um, but anything that contains DEET um, is considered to be effective against uh, ticks. So I think Off has um, a brand. I think there's a few other brands out there um, that have the DEET in it, and that is usually uh, sufficient for preventing them from getting on you. By the way, Sue, I'm a jinx. I said I was telling everybody a few weeks ago, you know, there haven't been that many mosquitoes this summer, and then we had all the rains, and I, I was attacked by about 3,000 of them. Um, So I'll never say that again. Exactly. And I will say that with all of that rain, um, we've created a lot of mosquito breeding grounds. So Mm -hmm. anywhere on your property that you have standing water, that could be um, empty planters, empty buckets, a shovel that's sitting with the the blade up um, can collect water, and that can quickly become a breeding ground for uh, for mosquitoes. So walk around your yard. Empty out any standing water because uh, we don't want to encourage them to breed. They they seem to do that quite effectively without us giving them other places to uh, to breed. Um, but on that note, um, Stu, you and I had chatted last week, and you had asked me if I had heard about anything around cases of malaria that yes. were in Florida and Texas. So mm-hmm. I did a little homework. Okay. And indeed, there were six locally acquired cases of malaria in Sarasota County, Florida, and one case in Cameron County, Texas. So 
It's not the first time it's happened. Um, actually, back in 2003, there were eight cases um, that were identified in Palm Beach County, Florida. So right now what they're doing is they're doing uh, really enhanced um, uh, case detection. They're doing truck spraying and aerial spraying, especially in the counties where um, the mosquitoes, uh, the cases were discovered. And, you know, locally acquired, generally speaking, in the United States is pretty low. It's extremely low, as a matter of fact. Um, we usually see cases of malaria in people that have traveled to other areas of the world where we know that malaria is endemic. And um, so it could be that, you know, some of the cases we see are travel-related. So what I would say is if you're planning on traveling to Florida or Texas, you should be packing lots of mosquito um, <laughs> repellent with you. Again, use the ones that contain DEET. And try to avoid being out early morning, you know, dusk or dawn, uh, because those are the times when mosquitoes are most active. But in general, use your mosquito repellent when you're outside and make sure you have screens on your windows. Um, you know, we don't want the mosquitoes getting into the house and taking little snacks through the night on you. Yeah, so. I'm a little snack. <laughs> yeah. And I heard that uh, the mosquitoes that buzz, they're not going to bite you. It's the other ones. Yes. So the the particular mosquito is in the Anopheles family. Oh. Uh, so there's a, that's a particular type of mosquito that can carry malaria. And so the <clears throat> thing to know about that is if you have somebody that has a malaria infection mm -hmm. and they're bitten by an Anopheles mosquito, that Anopheles mosquito can then transmit that malaria to another person locally. So... So it's kind of like a game of tag with I, I, malaria. I can't go without asking you a couple of quick questions about that. Is malaria contagious? No, okay. it's not directly contagious. It's all about it's, the mosquito. All right. So mosquitoes, it's it's what we call a vector-borne borne illness. So you have to be bitten by a mosquito that actually is infected with mm -hmm. malaria. Okay. Now, uh, is it curable, malaria? Yes. It's, it's actually preventable. There are medications that you can take if you're traveling to a country where they know they have malaria. Um, there are pills that you can take, which I believe contain quinine, and you take it for about four weeks before you travel. Hmm. Um, and you can check with any um, travel health clinic. It, it, the CDC has a great website if you're planning on traveling and you hit CDC travel and plug in the country you're going and it will tell you what you should be concerned about as far as communicable illnesses or vector-borne illnesses <clears throat> and, um, you know, travel vaccines like yellow fever, things like that. But there are a lot of recommendations around malaria. And um, so that's, that's, great. that's a good place to find information if you're, if you're travel If you're a globetrotter, I recommend the CDC website to get your your information. Hi, WICH. You have a question for Sue? Yes. Uh, Sue, I had the single shot. The first one, I had no problem. 
So I got the second shot, and I was bedridden for three days. I couldn't walk, and and I I never fully recovered recovered from that. Mm. I still have trouble walking. My doctor knows it. He doesn't do anything about it, so I'm just stuck with it. Thanks. uh, Okay. Thank you for calling. Thank you, Sue. Something unusual. You're welcome. I'm I'm sorry that that happened to you. Um, So there is something that you can do as a citizen, if you, uh, as a private citizen who um, had some kind of reaction to uh, any medication or any kind of treatment, and it's called, um, oh, there's vaccine adverse event report sheet, I think it's called, Um, V-A-E-R-S. And if you type that into Google, there is a form that you can fill out and submit. Um, we always encourage patients when they have any kind of adverse reaction to talk to their primary provider or whoever administered to let them know that they did have a reaction and what those um, reactions were, whether it was a fever or in your case, you said that you were having difficulty walking. Mm-hmm. Um, but these forms are reviewed at the state level, and providers can submit them, private citizens can submit them, and um, it just helps kind of document side effects um, or adverse events that are uh, connected with medications or vaccines. So, um, you know, thankfully we've had very few people that have had any kind of uh, serious reaction to any of the vaccines we've given. But we always, um, when we give a vaccine, we give what's called the vaccine information sheet. And on that sheet about the vaccine that you received is the information to file that report with um, VAERS um, so that you can submit the report yourself. But we encourage people, if you have a reaction, please let us know, and we will file the report as well. Uh, you guys are really great. It's um, learning so much. I, I will go out and buy a suit of armor, however. And uh, <laughs> do you ever watch? I'm sure you watch them. You see these television commercials uh, selling um, prescription drugs, and you know, everybody looks happy and jumping around. And then they give the side effects, and you go, "Oh God, why would I ever take that?" Uh, I guess they have to report everything that's been reported. Or Sue. Still with me, Sue? Yes. Okay. Did you hear me? Maybe we got cut off. No, I I did hear that. Uh, my husband comments on them all the time. He goes, good Lord, who uh, in their right I, mind would ever take those medications? I know, but I know. The companies are required to make those disclosures about their medications in the attempt for the patient to be able to make an informed decision. So, um, but one last thing about mosquitoes that I wanted people to be aware of. Um, Connecticut, again, our friends at the Connecticut Agricultural Experimental Station um, have collection sites all over the state of Connecticut. And in our uh, Uncas Health District, there are collection sites in Franklin, Griswold, Montville, Salem, Sprague, and Voluntown. And they test uh, collect these mosquitoes every year and test every single one of them for things like eastern equine encephalitis or West Nile virus. And um, they don't test 
up here for malaria because it's not something it's not that common, we see yeah. up here. Um, but we have also tested, I believe, for dengue in the past. Um, so it's an ongoing surveillance program to hopefully quickly identify if there's any mosquitoes that are of concern, um, just so that we can uh, create public messages. I haven't heard too much this year about... Uh I haven't heard too much this year about mosquitoes and, uh, you know, carrying you, some of the things you said, but I'm but, sure you get updates. Well, and last year, 2022, there were no reports of eastern equine encephalitis or West Nile virus in the state in either mosquitoes or humans. So that's good news. It does tend to be cyclic, so we may in a few years see another kind of uptick in numbers. I think you remember just before the pandemic, we had quite a busy year with um, with Eastern equine encephalitis. Mm-hmm. But um, so far <clears throat> this year, there's been nothing to report from any of the collection sites for either um, Eastern equine or West Nile. Well, virus. that's good. So, Man, that's, that's a good, good note. Job. That's a good note. I, uh, I all my my line is lines are all lit up. I I don't know what your time frame is today. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let me just take another call here. Hi, WICH. Hi, welcome. Um, I just heard a caller complaining about uh, uh, difficulty walking, and uh, was that from the uh, uh, shingle shots? She felt it was from the second shingle shot uh, shot that she got. Yeah, um, well, I had shingles, and I haven't had the shingles shot yet, but... uh, yeah, I don't know if I'd discourage anybody from from getting them. I know she would. Uh, I'm wondering, so anyhow, I'm having difficulty walking. And it seems uh, I have scoliosis, so, you know, but this seems to have come on quite suddenly um, over the past few months. And I'm wondering if that could possibly be a side effect of Lyme disease. I was thinking of having my doctor check mm-hmm. for that. All right, thank you. We'll have Sue address that. Thank you. That, that's a great question. And um, I actually, uh, I know that it can cause um, walking difficulties. And we've seen patients that have had uh, Lyme disease not realize they have it and have actually um, had to be seen by neurologists because of the um, how the disease has become so um, spread in their body. So I would definitely encourage you to talk to your primary care provider about getting testing done um, for all of the tick-borne diseases. So it would be Lyme disease, babesiosis, and anaplasmosis. Um, they usually call it a tick panel, um, but you can certainly look to see if you have any of those illnesses. And, um, you know, we never rule it out until we have the lab mm-hmm. tests in front of us, but it certainly can cause, um, in, you know, more pronounced cases, it can certainly cause um, difficulty walking. Well, it could turn out to be just uh, something we most of us deal with one time arthritis, I yes, suppose. Yeah, absolutely. But again, that's why you, you have yeah. a primary care provider because they can kind of look at all of the 
potential causes and um, and then you know refer you out to specialists as needed. Well, Sue, you, you're so interesting, and we we can you hold on, and we'll just finish out the hour. Sure. All right, thank you. I'll be right back. We'll be right back with Sue Dove. I'll take some more phone calls. All right, uh, Sue's kind enough to let us take a couple more calls. Hi, WICH, what's your question? Yes, good morning. Morning. Components, components, components. We're components. What's your question, sir? uh, The COVID scam. We're also component to the fact that the FDA itself does not do any actual testing of any drug which goes onto the market. It merely approves and reads, scans over what the pharmaceutical companies have done for their own research. Um, no wonder uh, VAERS is only a uh, formality. Okay, well, Sue, Sue, did you agree with anything the gentleman said? So it is true that the FDA does not do their own studies. They do review the data that is submitted to them by the pharmaceutical comp- uh, companies that are mm-hmm. It doing the research and development for any drugs here for use in the United States. Um, so I guess, you know, if they are looking at it and they feel that the drug uh, is going to be beneficial to the population, then they vote favorably on it. If they feel that there are there's not enough information yet or the study is not large enough or there's questions about certain aspects of it, um, they can approve it with conditions or they can, um, in the case of the pandemic, it was approved under what is called emergency use authorization. Um, But, you know, those processes have been in place for a long time, and while the emergency use authorization is an unusual thing to have happen with medications, it's rarely used, um, and it takes a pretty significant event to have them issue one, but um, I think we can all agree the pandemic was a serious enough event to consider you know, the the risk versus benefit of mm-hmm. not having a vaccine. Um, I believe that there probably are people that have had ill effects from the vaccine, but I don't know that it's any more than with any other medications that we put in our body. Um, it It is true that the COVID vaccine did not have as long of a a study time as mm-hmm. other medications. Usually the approval process for medications is approximately seven years on average. Um, and it's very methodical. It's very deliberate uh, for just that reason. You know, you can only test it so much and it's not until you release it out into the general population that you're going to see the full um Effect I've always been uh, the medication. I've always been curious about this. So you know, we and I know I've heard before that we wait a long time before we'll put something out. But then uh, you hear in other countries that they've had success in a relatively short time with something. When people who are seriously ill, I often wondered why why they can't at least have the option of trying that. 
There are some medications that are approved for experimental use only, and those are usually confined to um, certain studies. So the patient usually has to meet several criteria to be included in the study, and if, they're, if they meet those criteria, then they would qualify for the experimental medication. Um, or I think there's also another category called compassionate use. So basically it's you've exhausted all other options, they've heard of this medication maybe used in another country, and they can apply for compassionate use of that particular medication um, in that one individual. Mm -hmm. But that's a pretty rare exception to the process. Well, I would think that it would be in a perfect world that if somebody, the doctor says, there's nothing more I can do for you, why not yeah. be able to get something from another country? Yeah, I mean, I, I know of people that have traveled to other countries just to get the treatment that they were mm -hmm. hoping would be the answer. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody has their, um, their own set of risk aversion, I guess. Mm -hmm. And if they feel that the risk of trying some medication that's, you know, not been well studied is better than the alternative of there's no other treatments left for me, um, then, you know, okay. that's, a, that's an individual choice, I would say. Well, it's always a pleasure. Uh, Sue, just one last question, because I didn't ask you this before. What are the symptoms of malaria? So malaria, uh, typically you would see fever, um, headache, uh, achiness, which, you know... Could be a million things. A, a lot of times we always say, you know, flu-like symptoms, but <laughs> headache, um, fever, and uh, muscle joint aches are pretty typical of, uh, of malaria. Could it generally go away by itself without medication? It can. Um, however, it might be a miserable period <laughs> of time. Um, usually folks at least take something to control their fever, um, but sometimes they end up in the hospital because the headache gets to the point where they need something a little stronger than Tylenol or ibuprofen to control the headache. And there may be other medications that they can use to treat it to lessen the severity or the impact of the illness. Okay, I'll leave you with one healthy word. <laughs> Blueberries. Yes, antioxidants. I just made a salad last night that had um, fresh goat cheese, uh, salad greens, fresh strawberries, fresh, uh, fresh blueberries, and some chopped pecans All with right. a lovely vinaigrette dressing. And put, out that, put out that cookbook, Sue. <laughs> I know. I once asked this wonderful nutritionist, if you were on a desert island, there was one food that you could have. She said, blueberries. I never forgot that. Yeah. Yeah, they're good for you. Well, you take care of yourself and always appreciate the time. No problem, Sue. Have a great day. You too. Sue Dub from the Ancus Health Center. She knows her stuff. <laughs>